I am your host, Matt, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lorna. Hello! If you've never listened to the podcast before, one of us does a report on a moment, event, topic, person from history. Today, Lorna is going to do that. Yes. What are you going to do a report on today, Lorna? Fashion. Okay. Is that... What What? what does that fall under? What category? Um... What do you mean? Moment, event, person, topic. Topic. Yeah. Topic. So I did actually start out looking at um, designers who changed the world to like the invention of the little black dress, the mini skirt, things like that. But so I will reference. Twiggy. No, no, Twiggy's a model. Yeah. She wore clothes, didn't she? Okay. She's more famous for her eyelashes. Oh, shit. That's more of a beauty. Oh, is it? Aspect, okay. yeah. So I will reference these things like how how uh, fashion designers change the world but i wanted to also give a bit a bit of background on paris fashion so it actually took a bit of a turn and this topic is paris fashion intermingled with some key designers okay because when i think of fashion i think of milan Milan. i think of paris paris yes i think of uh new york yes anywhere else london yeah they start the four main yeah, there are your four main. There's some others which have got um, Fashion Week, so they tend to be everywhere. So, like, there's a little Newcastle one, there's a Liverpool one. But the big there's ones. The big ones, yeah. But there's big ones in uh, Australia as well. I think there's a Melbourne and a Sydney Fashion right. Week. There's both of them. There's um, also, recent in recent years, there's, there's the Copenhagen Fashion Summit. So that's, like, a meeting every year. I think it's usually in April time. And that's about sustainable fashion. About the environment. Yeah, that's on my to-do list. On my bucket list to get to one of them. Is it? Yeah, so that one's quite a, a cool one. And there's, like, the... Um, so there's things all year round, but usually Fashion Week is held at them. Four main ones that you mentioned. It's usually twice... Twice a year, so for each season, so like autumn, winter and spring, summer. So usually they're in February, uh, yeah, February time and then September, October time mm. again. So September, October time is spring, summer, February time is autumn, winter for the next season. Right, okay. Obviously if you're in Australia, opposite way around. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a bit of a different one. So um, fashion gives... An individual, a way of expressing themselves, it allows them to be creative and they get to experiment with their own unique style. And it's adapted and shifted according to social climates such as wars and recessions and that also has an impact on how it, how it is, like, on what's in fashion. Social classes as well, perhaps. Yeah, um, there's many fashion designers in the world but there's a few which are credited with um, positive and groundbreaking changes which we'll get onto. Um, but I thought I would give some insight into Paris and its history as at the centre of fashion because a lot of people would still consider it at the centre of fashion and for a period it was. Do you not consider it as the centre of fashion? Um, I consider it the centre of an aspect of fashion, mm. which we'll get on to. There we go, I knew Did you I were going to do right? it, yeah. So Thank we'll you. get on to that bit. But I think, I don't know, I think it's up to a designer's discretion. Call me Lee. Stop it. You're coming out with all. I know what my fashion um, design so is. So, my next sentence says, um, so first thinking about designers who've changed history, Matt, is there any that you would expect to come up with in this report? Go, right, so. Any big names? Lee, as I know him, also known as Alexander McQueen. Right. 
I've seen. He only doc- gets a brief mention. I, I've saw, I've uh, I've heard of. I've watched a documentary. That's why I'm. It was good, and your top ten list of films one, last year. Top, top one. Top one or two, yeah. Ooh. Definitely, definitely. Very good documentary. Um, Versace. Am I in the right ideas? Am I yeah, going yeah, the right... big names, yeah. Russia, John Russia. No, sorry. <laughs> He's um, not mentioned. I think Versace's only brief, briefly Lager, mentioned. What's it called? Carl Lagerfeld. Lagerfeld. Yeah, but yeah. who does he design for? Oh, not sure. Okay. Gucci. No. One of the other ones. Dior. No, but Dior is a good one. Good Thanks. guess. Um, Calvin Klein? Calvin nah. Klein does not get a mention. Sorry, I'm struggling now. Um, it's all right. I can tell a, you in the report. Don't stress yourself. <laughs> Sarah Burton. She no, doesn't get mentioned, does do but yeah. she designs for Alexander Um I'm struggling now. Versace, Gucci, Armani. Uh, Armani gets a mention. What's he yeah. called? Giorgio. Giorgio. I think he does. I'm not sure. Okay, I've named I've, a few. I've read a lot of names, so now I can't remember what's in okay. and what's out. There's a few that I'm missing, which are going to stress me out but you'll yeah, get them you'll get them so um fashion in france um and the significant interest in it can be dated back to louis the 14th so have a listen back to our second, second ever episode oh this is Matt's quite a nice report on full circle. that guy i also thought when you mentioned um an individual means of expression earlier i thought last week marie antoinette same yes, sort of thing definitely so um prior to the rise of the modern nation state fashions were geographically dispersed so they were quite different so like now what we wear you'll find somebody wearing in like new york new york across europe like a lot of places you'll find people wearing similar but at this time before before nation states yeah they they tended to wear fashions from their own country which is good i think it still still happens happens, but not to the same scale i don't think maybe differently yeah so um Florence and other powerful Italian city-states, as well as the courts of Burgundy and Spain, um, they had certain fashion centres there. Um, But France emerged from the end of the Thirty Years' War in 1648 as the largest, richest and most powerful state in Europe. Um, So the rulers of France, most notably Louis XIV, understood that fashion was a potential weapon. in, establish, in establishing France's cultural like dominance, like, and people would aspire to look up to France. Yeah. So fashion was like used as a tool in that. So he exercised control over his aristocrats, uh, and ensured that anyone required at Versailles wore a specific dress. So they had to dress a certain way, which um, I think Marie Antoinette knew, knew about dressing and things like that. Well, she dress was made, but I think. And parts of the people coming to Versailles. Yeah, yeah. Um, the king's chief minister, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, recognised the growing economic importance of textiles and clothing. Um, and so he used this as his advantage to um, develop France as a leader in fashion. Um, following this, as France moved from having courtiers to the bourgeoisie, the bourgeoisie became the driving force that made the econ- economy move from hand to hand. So they passed money around and they were the ones that developed fashion. Yeah. Um, and people were able to spend the money on fashion items, which meant it became more of a trend, more of a growing interest. Bit of a luxury thing for the Yeah, for rather than class. just you wear it to go to Versailles, it's yeah. now more widespread. By the 18th century, wealthy foreigners were travelling to Paris to have their clothes made or they employed seamstresses and tailors to copy the latest Paris fashions. The Paris fashions were what was written in the newspaper. So if the newspaper said, all the women are wearing long uh, blue dresses, then 
people would either go to Paris to get that dress or they'd say to a seamstress, make it like this. It's interesting how these things develop. Like Louis XIV, you mentioned, he um, he was very jealous. I think it was Italian glass. He sort of loved that they, they were known. I think it was Venetian mirrors. And he was like, I need to yeah. beco- like, be better than Italy. It's materialistic yeah, though, isn't it? They develop because the other they want to beat them and then they become the leaders in that. And yeah, and now they're like, oh, we need to stay the leaders. Them. Like, yeah. um, how can we do that? And fashion's one of their methods. Um, so whilst people are saying, I want, I want this dress because that's what the newspaper says is cool in Paris, they're also complaining about how fashion has changed, how much it costs and how, um, how like developed and like outrageous the fashions have become so whilst they're going make this for me they're also saying there's these three elements which i'm a bit unsure about but i still want the dress they're still it's keeping up with the joneses isn't it just Mm, they need to know what you know they're saying i do know yeah yeah. so they just needed to be they didn't want to be left behind while all the friends are getting these dresses the joneses yeah specifically so the themes of eagerness to follow the latest paris fashions and outrage over their extravagance expense and immortality uh this these themes were to characterize foreigners attitudes towards uh, French fashion for centuries right. and towards Paris fashion. So a bit of jealousy and a bit of envy and a bit of... Yeah, but I think it's a different way of life in, in France as well and I think they always see, like, there's I, there's quite a few books around for, um, like, girls my age which are, like, how to be Parisian and there it's is. all about... You've read that book. I have read that <laughs> book, but it's all about, like, living a certain lifestyle that they have in France. So I yeah. understand that it's enviable that they want that yeah. lifestyle, but at the same time, they're like, I don't really want to have to pay for it. Yeah. I can't, like, we're, we're dressing a bit risque and stuff like that, even though it probably wasn't. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a bit of a change for people. And then that, I still think there's a bit of an attitude of, can't believe how expensive things are in Paris fashion. I and, can't believe how expensive things are in And Manchester. I wouldn't wear that. Well, but yeah, <laughs> other people would be like, Paris, but Paris. you're just like, right. can't believe how expensive things are in Poundland. Top man. <laughs> um, so, there's a bit of this attitude towards Paris fashion where people are a bit, they want it, but they don't want it. It seems a bit like a love-hate relationship. Yeah, that's the good way of putting it. Yeah, so whilst this attitude's going on, people are asking seamstresses to make the clothes or the travelling to Paris for these clothes. The high-quality tailoring of London began to make its influence felt on the continent. So in London, men's dress was increasingly based on country and sport clothing rather than the Frenchified court fashions. And I think that's just a different way of life because like in England, there's different traditions and different things going on. So the court clothing wouldn't necessarily suit an English gentleman. They'd need probably something for hunting or horse riding, things like that. Mm. Um, So men of fashion throughout the western world began to dress in english style so now they're asking for paris designers to make things in english style or they're asking the seamstresses so it's a bit of a shift from paris fashion to like there's a bit of competition um but paris was still the leaders the leadership of paris um in women's fashions accelerated during the 19th century and it was the rise of what became known as haute couture as you said so it's not merely the fine arts of sewing cutting and other techniques necessary for the production of fine garments that flourished in paris it's also the structure of the industry that evolves so like hot couture is you go to like a seamstress or a tailor or a designer and you say 
a one so it's like um it's a one off isn't it yeah it is a one off you go it's very very expensive and the skills needed to make it are like very like highly skilled like you could have like um 30 people all embroidering a dress and it right. could take them months i think it's insane a little bit in a way having, it is ridiculous it's so expensive and it's like you'd wear it once and then and it's just a one off like it's a unique piece that no one else in the world will have. And they cost an absolute fortune. It's crazy. That's, that's what they do on the runways. Is that what they want? No, so there Sometimes. are some haute couture fashion shows right. in Paris and they say, like, this is what our brand can make. Yeah. But on the runways, it's usually ready to wear, ah, which right, I'll get okay. onto. Oh, okay. So um, the structure of the industry of haute couture also evolved. So dressmaking moved from being a small scale craft to big business. So now there's. People are trying to run businesses, trying to say, come to us, we'll make your dress. Um, prior to the middle of the 19th century, there were no fashion designers. Dressmakers were assisted by specialised, skilled workers. They collaborated with the clients to produce garments in the latest style. So it was more of a client, like, it was a discussion rather than a, this is what this is what you can buy from us. So I'd go and I'd be like, I want a shirt, but can you have flowers on it? Yeah, whereas now nowadays, we don't get to go to Topman and say... I want this, can you make it? No. So hot control yeah. became more of a, a, like, this is what we're able to make, we can discuss it with you, but this is what we can do, and this is your one-off design. Um, so it wasn't long after this until the courtier, which is the French word for designer, was born. So the first true courtier was an Englishman called Charles Frederick Worth. So he was considered dynamic and enterprising and his skills at clothing design and dressmaking were matched by his skills for merchandising and self-promotion. So he's a bit of a dynamic man who can sell his skills both. He's a people person, he can talk the talk, but he can also sell the dress. So sell the sell. Yeah, so he's, he's very skilled, but he can also sell himself. Have you heard of him before? I have heard of him, but only briefly. Heard of him. I've yeah. not heard of him. Um, so, it's been. I've read a few articles where, articles where they've disputed it that he was the first designer. Yeah. So, like, the oh, first fashion is. designer, but he's the most commonly accepted yeah. individual. Um, so, he portrayed himself as an artist, um, and his function was to understand what his clients should wear and to dress them accordingly. So, he advised his clients. So, if they came to him and said, I want this dress, he'd say, No, no, <laughs> that oh. will make you look huge. Like. Right. You should dress in this or this is the current trend you should wear this so this differed from the old system where dressmakers basically would just make whatever for yeah, the customer yeah. and now they're saying no yeah some people need way. that i think most people need that i think they do yeah people be like no that doesn't suit you yeah definitely well that's why they have like personal shoppers and that's things why in i go with now. you <laughs> so you can buy i don't know no no <laughs> um so he uh, Worth is also credited with inventing the fashion show and the fashion label, which became a status symbol, ah. and he transformed the fashion industry and um, what became a fashion brand. So he was able to brand himself, and it led on to later fashion brands. Because right. before this, is just dressmakers with yeah. skilled assistants. Um, he went on to become so successful and respected that he earned the final say on whatever the customer was going to wear, regardless of their opinion, which is quite big. Because yes. it's not long since they got a, a big say on what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, they got all the say on what they wanted. Um, he also came up with the idea of actually sketching the design before producing an expensive sample garment. Um, and he's hailed as a genius for that. But I said, it sense, just, it? to me, seems like simple planning. Yeah. Have a bit of... Don't just yeah. I'm just going to start this. Yeah, what a waste oh, of time. 
<laughs> and someone comes in like, no, no, I don't no. like it. You just draw him, be like, it's yeah. like a tattoo, isn't it? Which also, but it seems unusual to me that he's like, he's like, no, I'll tell the customer what to wear. They don't get a say, yeah. but at the same time, here's this sketch. Here's like, approve this sketch. Yeah. It seems a bit unusual, but it's quite a good, he's a good... Yeah, he's just taking more of the responsibility, more of the decision. But customer still has to agree. Like, if you're gonna buy something, yeah, still gonna have. He'll to. just show them, and yeah. like, this is what I'm making. So he was the first of many designers who took Paris fashion in the direction of haute couture, as I said, um, which was the pinnacle of custom dressmaking. Known as HC in the business. No, it's not. Okay. Um, <laughs> But fashion also evolved simultaneously towards the production of confection. So I'll come back to confection, but this is the red, ready-to-wear aspect. Okay. So confection, it seems... I don't know why they use that term. It seems a bit... Reminds me of sweets. I know. Confectionery. But, but that's what I mean, like confectionery. You can buy it then and there. So like ah, this dress, you can buy it then and mm, there. It's, it's a bit of a weak link for me. Well, anyway, these were ready-made dresses or garments which were ready for sale in department stores. And they were oh, ready yeah. for sale at a fixed price. So this okay. is how it all links together. So as there's a rise in department stores, mm. there's a rise in ready-to-wear garments. You've got your John Lewis's. You've got your, your Debenhams. Selfridges. Your Selfridges. Mr. Selfridges, gone. yeah. Bloomingdale's. Bloomingdale's. Macy's. Browns. Yeah, yeah, you've nailed them all. I think that's all of them. <laughs> there's definitely more, but... Um, so... In these department stores, items were display- displayed attractively and it would encourage more people to buy. It seems like a good business plan for me. Um, so in the stores, shopping became a form of recreation that made af- affordable versions of fashionable dress available. So it became a- available to more of the, yeah. the population. By the late 19th century, the garment industry was embracing both couture and confection, confection and it was one of... Paris's most important industries. And the French government recognised how important it is. So right. I know that Louis earlier recognised how important it yeah. is. And later on I'll mention about the French government understanding how important fashion is for their industry. Um, early designers were influenced by Art Nouveau. Is that how you say that? Nouveau. Yeah. <laughs> and Orientalist Trends. Um, so women were liberated from corsets and heavy petticoats and instead they wore designers' whimsical designs with flowing bias-cut dresses. Um, Paul Poiret... Sorry, what are bias-cut dresses? Don't know. You tried to brush over that, didn't you? I did. I was like, hopefully Matt won't come up with this because I did look into what other things were, but not this. <laughs> bias-cut dress. I wouldn't know. They're from the 1930s. So, bias cut dress. It's a piece of woven fabric at 45 degrees to warp to its warp and weft threads. Does that. So, it's like. A bias cut is a technique. Yeah, so it's a technique of cutting cloth. So, it's the greater stretch in the bias, so the diagonal direction of the right. fabric helps it accentuate body lines and curves and drape softly. So, it's essentially a drape dress. Right, okay. Think 1920s style. Okay. They're a bit drapey. Yeah, a little bit. Flappery, drapery. A little bias cutting, I would say. (laughs) Yeah. To use the term that I've learned. Right. So, there's instead of being fitted, heavy, they're now more. Right. Flowing. Um. Paul Poiret 
was the first was the most sorry I know was the most influential fashion designer of the early 20th century have you heard of him no I haven't actually but he was to be followed in the 1920s by Gabrielle Chanel oh Coco Coco Chanel Chanel. wait was his name Coco Chanel it's a she she's called Gabrielle oh sorry was her name oh did she okay like named after obviously the Pixar film Coco no no? So her dresses redefined elegance as understatement. Who designs for Chanel? Uh, not sure why. Am I supposed to know this? You said the name earlier. Did I? Yeah. Um, it's one of the um, Lagerfeld. Yes. Yeah. Well done. So. Is that you say it? Lagerfeld. 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 Gabrielle Chanel was born in 1883 in Salmore, France. Um, she revolutionised the 1920s fashion. She came onto the Paris fashion scene in right. 1925. But a report said that she opened her first store in 1910. So I think she was building herself up and yeah. she became, she became influential from 1925. She reinvented the female wardrobe with tweed, the little black dress and neutral tones. Okay. So Chanel still used tweed in their collections pretty much every season. Okay. And the little black dress. You've heard of the little black, black dress, haven't you? Um, You keep saying it, but I don't really know. It's just like... Just a black dress, is yeah, it? Yeah, but every girl should have a little black oh, dress. Oh, should they? Yeah. So before Chanel, um, black was only usually worn at a funeral. Yeah. And she made it quite oh. elegant and now, sophisticated to wear it. Every day, stop looking every at what I'm wearing. <laughs> Literally, in the every everyday. Day. In the everyday or every day. Yeah. Uh, just like no, I am wearing... Some funky pants the other day. Oh, I did. They were rainbow. Yeah. So, um, Coco Trousers, Chanel's... Oh, yeah, tree <laughs> Trousers. Um, Coco Chanel's aim was to make women more comfortable, and she liberated women from the corset, as I said. Mm. Um, she started a business with hats and then extended the label to clothes. Um she turned the black colour black into a staple style colour. Yeah. Which I think is amazing. You love that. Yeah. So was she part of, when you say she was in Paris in 1925, was she part of the, um, the, the you know, the 20s in Paris? She must have been, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she just opened, She her brand was a big brand at the time in Paris and she's like... The roaring 20s, is yeah. what I was trying to say. I can't yes. remember what it's called. <laughs> But at the time, she had many competitors. Ooh. These included Madeleine Voinet, Jean Lanvin. You've heard of Lanvin, haven't you? No. There's still a brand. Okay. And Ella Schiaparelli. Oh, Schiaparelli's still a brand. Um, I've never heard of it. The latter's probably the most famous. Oh, yes. Okay. She was born in Italy and started a fashion brand with knitwear in 1927. I love uh, that brand, uh, the Schiaparelli brand, also started the career of other designers, such as Hubert de Givenchy. Givenchy, that's one. Yes. I mean, I, when I was thinking Versace earlier, and I was like, what's the other one that sounds like that? Givenchy. Givenchy, as no. I call him. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, right, okay. Hubert. And he, he's got his own. <laughs> Later Is he still on. alive? No. I'm not sure if he's still alive, but his brand's still alive. Right. But he started his career working with Schiaparelli. So is Schiaparelli a brand now? Yeah, oh, right. so if so you search her, it says Maison Schiaparelli. Ah, okay. So when does Russia John Russia come into He this? doesn't. <laughs> okay. Um, so Chanel's got a few co- 
uh, competitors. I can't believe you don't know Lanvin. Uh, sorry, is Lanvin okay. a thing that's happening now? So yeah. Um, in the years between the two wars, designers uh, who were mostly women created styles that were feminine and body conscious and imitated all over the world. So these designers are the changing fashion for women across the world, which right. is good. Um, new techniques contributed to the rapid dissemination of Paris fashions throughout the world. Whereas in the 19th century, clients were shown sample dresses and fitted for their own garments in the privacy of courtiers' showrooms. By the early 20th century, the fashion show, with its now familiar parade of models wearing the season's new outfits, had become the standard means by which designers introduced their new collections. So Worth introduced the fashion show the century before, and now it's become a way of them getting the collections across the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. News of the latest fashions were quickly relayed to magazines and newspapers abroad. Like, now they're instantaneous, but I reckon there was, like, the next day they'd be in the I. newspaper. Copyists worked overtime to sketch the new designs for production in less expensive, ready-to-wear versions. Yeah. So, the runway would have, like, a, a, big, a big gown, and then they'd produce it in a more affordable version yeah for, and sell it in the department stores for a little bit cheaper but still, still expensive that, yeah do you get on to sort of um fast fashion i believe i didn't know because oh, okay. we're, we're, we're a history podcast we're a history Matt. podcast sorry we're currently in a fast fashion world so some brands have had a move to um only doing ready-to-wear collections so they won't show like um hot couture they just do ready-to-wear yeah um, and other ones have them ready instantaneously. So Burberry a few years ago did a, a fashion show and immediately afterwards all the clothes were online, ready to wear shop. Like, oh, right, you okay. could shop them online immediately. For expense, expensive prices. Burberry, yeah, but the ready to wear is a lot cheaper than yeah. if you went hot couture. Yes. Yeah, but I don't touch on fast fashion okay. as in brands that we know. So. Okay. Um, I forgot where I was up to. Fashion photography um, had, at the end of the 1930s, it had um, replaced fashion illustration as the preferred means of representing fashion in magazines, editorial yeah, and advertising. Um, so it also gave rapid publicity to new designs. So you can see it yourself rather than it being fashion yeah. illustration. However... World War Two and the German occupation of Paris dealt a severe blow to Paris's fashion mm. leadership. Many couture houses shut down for the duration of the war. Those that remained in business found both materials and customers in short supply, as you would. People aren't going to need the same amount of clothes no. during the war. Rationing and everything. Yeah. Even worse, the vital American market threatened to go its own way as sportswear designers such as Claire McArdle made a virtue of the American look during this hiatus in Parisian fashion leadership. Right. So they've got a lot of customers from America, but because there's the clothes down and they're struggling through the war, yeah. there's designers rising up in America. Right. So um, American fashion came to be more of like a sporty look, and I think it still is. So if you think about designers like Tommy Hilfiger, yeah. Very sporty. Right. Things like that. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, Calvin Klein. Like, if you think about the designers, they're either like casuals yeah. or sporty. Mm. Calvin Klein's a bit of a casual kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Russia John Russia. Quite <laughs> casual. Um, <laughs> we... Jasper Conrad. I'm going through my. What, when you walk through Devon and was in the Trafford Centre. 
Yeah, but it's the worst. Like next year, we're like Jack and Jones. Jack and Jones. What's the uh, Lee's? The jeans. That's the Lee I was referring to earlier. Alexander McQueen did Lee. No. Lee jeans. Wrangler jeans. Oh. Wrangler jeans, alright. Levi's jeans. Do you get onto Levi's? No, I don't mention Levi's. Levi's But we have mentioned Levi's in the past. We have. On the California Gold Rush episode. We did. So you don't go on anything to do with. No, no I'm just talking about my Paris fashion houses. Okay. With the end of the war, the re-establishment of the fashion industry was one of the top priorities of the new French government. So the French government recognised like, how are. important it is. Yeah. Right. With Christian Dior and the creation of the new look in 1947, Paris found its champion of reasserted fashion leadership. Christian Dior had graduated after studying political science in 1928. He then opened an art gallery. He then worked at Figaro magazine as an illustrator and later was hired as a design assistant, first by Robert Puget, don't know how you say that, and then by Lucien Lelong. In 1945, after the war, Christian met fellow designer Marcel Boussac and together they started the Dior Fashion House in December 1946. Do you know Boussac? What's it called? Boussac. Marcel was like... Boussac. Why are we not calling it Boussac? No, because I think he knew how strong of a designer Christian Dior was. Got a better name as him. well. Yeah, but if he only opened his fashion house in December 1946. 1947, Paris was back at the centre of fashion. Right. That is how quick he works. Not even a year. Yeah, but there's other people, surely. No, no, Christian Dior is credited right, for, bringing, for reasserting right. Paris's um, status Where is he from, sorry? The fashion centre. He, I don't know where he's from. We'll say Italy. Yeah, could could be. Might be French, don't know. Um, Dior became increasingly popular after his first fashion show where he introduced the new look. This was coloured, cutting-edge creations designed to enhance the curves of a woman's body. So they emphasised the waist, they had straight shoulders and half-naked legs and they were a total hit after the war. So women were seeking a bit more playful fashion, joyful yeah. cuts, rather than... What was in the past. Yeah. So just updating it. The new look was successful. Paris is back at the centre. I wonder if that's why the shop's called New Look. Maybe. Never thought about it. I wonder why it's called Top Shop. Because <laughs> it's the top shop. Top man though. Why is it called River Island? Yeah, I'm not sure. I actually have no idea. H and V stands for his master's voice. Does it? Yeah. That's why there's a dog and a uh gramophone playing it's about his master's voice interesting little fat fit bit of a side note cool um so fancy's uh paris is back at the center and christine dior's new look also brought a new business model for many of the french fashion brands um dior and his contemporaries who are jacques fath and hubert de givenchy oh. so just a side note about Givenchy he um, is credited with creating the shirt dress and he was also a close friend of Audrey Hepburn after he styled her for the film Sabrina oh right cool Um, so he sorry when you say shirt dress just a shirt that's like a dress but do you wear that out or is it I've got a few shirt dresses Matt okay I'm thinking more of um, not a pyjama Pajama, like no, shirt. no, no, I don't think so. No, but I it's think... like an actual shirt dress, yeah. It's just so... a dress, isn't it? In a way, but it's good. well, now we'd say it's a dress, but I think at the time, women top, didn't even wear shirts. That's cool. 
Anyway, Dior and his contemporaries such as Givenchy, they represented a new development in fashion business. Unlike many of the women designers of In Between the Wars, um, whose companies were often small, these male designers, um, and a few women, like most notably Chanel, were at the helm of large, well-funded corporations, so they were equipped to compete in a new climate of international trade and finance. So it went from being small to big fashion houses. Um, so in addition to couture collections, they also licensed their names to American manufacturers who produced less expensive lines and ancillary products. So France is back at the top. However, the new reign did not last long for oh. Paris. In the early 1960s, the youth quake fashions of Carnaby Street turned all eyes on London. All eyes on me. <laughs> so self-taught English designers such as Mary Quant popularised the miniskirt and other mod styles. Twiggy. So, no. Are we not up to that? I 60s. don't talk about Twiggy. I know, but she was... She was a, around in yeah, the 60s, but... Yeah, 60s. I'm talking about Mary Quant. Yeah. So um, at this time, there's like a big youth scene and they're looking to develop their own fashions. So like, obviously we would wear different things than our parents. This is, this is Twiggy all over. Um, Mary Quant um, Michael Caine as well introduced the miniskirt and hot pants in a small boutique on King's Road in the 60s yeah. women were embracing the second wave of feminism and were looking for something liberating and they found that in the playful miniskirt, miniskirt yeah. she changed the fashion game because she shook conservative ideals and created a liberating hedonistic narrative so it was a way of rebelling and she created controversial conversations around the miniskirt um in the past, women were expected to look a lot like their mothers and feminists and single women were fed up of that. So they were looking for this this new look, which Sexy Mary... alternative. Yeah. Is it still seen as controversial now? No. People I don't think so. Skirt, I, d- I don't think you can bat an eyelid now because what's in fashion at the minute is to go out in like a bodysuit lingerie kind of thing and tucked in your jeans. But you'd still, you know, there's certain places where you probably can't wear a miniskirt. Where? A funeral. Good point. Yeah. Excellent point. <laughs> Might be black though. Yeah, like yeah, like you won't wear it to a wedding probably. No, well you, I, I guess they're different, but uh, no, 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 but whenever but miniskirts I, are generally. Whenever dra- I try and find a dress for a wedding, my mum's always like, "Not too short." Not too short. It's like respectable. You're going in a church. Mm. But miniskirts are still a little bit. Ooh. Ooh. A bit, ooh. <laughs> um, okay. So that was what was going on in England. I'm not sure what miniskirt is. You are a short skirt. Just a short skirt. Yeah. Okay. They didn't used to have them. They used to be a bit longer. Like when you used to be. Like when you used to be at school, you used to roll up your skirt a little bit. No, Matt, we're talking like up here a mini skirt. Right. At least mid thigh. Right, mid thigh. Yeah. I'd look silly in one of them. So that's what's going on in England. You would. (laughs) You would. Um, But since the French lacked a youth culture that was comparable to that of England and America. They had to um, develop a stylistic equivalent. I'm right. not really sure what that means, but I think they like they tried to like plan collections it... around like the future and stuff, but they just were a bit out of touch. Yeah, it's interesting. Because um, I think France have quite a strong youth culture now. Yeah, I think they do, but at the time they didn't. Yeah, interesting. So ultimately. However, the most successful designer to emerge in Paris was the young Yves Saint Laurent. Oh, and he'd worked one. for Dior. He'd yeah. had his start at Dior. 
So he was a big one you were missing at the start. Yeah. Struggle with that name though, I can never say it. Yves Saint Laurent was attuned to influences coming from the street and from popular culture, and over the next decade he introduced a number of radical styles, including trouser suits for women. Pop art dresses. Yeah, like they just wore skirts and dresses. Yeah. Pop art dresses, safari jackets, pea coats and other styles. Um, and he, he looked at like ethnic styles and also drew on anti-fashion sensibility of the hippies. So he was quite a popular guy. Mm. Um, he also recognised that many of the women who most appreciated his clothes were too young and not rich enough to buy couture. Right. So, so he's now going to the, the people. Yeah. Um, he launched a ready-to-wear collection as a result of this. And he called this Reeve Gouch, which is uh, English in English is left bank. Right. Yeah, I've heard of that. Well, you've heard of that because I think it's a train stop. Yeah, maybe. Or there's definitely we've definitely seen that word in in Paris. Paris, Yeah, Yeah. rather than the collection. That's what I'm thinking. So, um, even though Paco Rabanne and Pierre Cardin pushed fashion towards the future, might be a Disneyland um, (laughs) stop patch. Creating uh, bold shapes, they were always under Yves Saint Laurent's shadow. It might actually be the Paco Rabanne. Paco Rabanne and Pierre Pierre Cardin. Yeah. So oh, they they pushed the limits around body shapes and stuff like that, but they were under Yves Saint Laurent's right. shadow. But they're mm. still around. Paco Rabanne, you've definitely heard of. You were, I didn't you Paco have your spray? Did you have that one? No. I thought you did. Who did you have? Um, Ralph Lauren. Ah. Uh, and whatever that one is over there, I don't know what that is. Okay. That's Armani, I think. Actually. Ooh, I'm fancy. Sure. Georgia. <laughs> so. <Victoria. laughs> Yves Saint Laurent was uh, the king of the latter part of the century for right. Paris. He pioneered the tuxedo suit for women, as I've said. Yeah. And he called well, this... tuxedo suit? He that called this said... smoking. Yes, yeah, so like a trouser suit, tuxedo oh, right. suit. Very They're the same thing. thing. I think so, yeah. But, well, what, is a tuxedo not a tuxedo? Suit. I don't know. I don't know if he did them for women. Oh, but that's what you just said. I know I did. But I've got this from two different places. Okay, okay. All I know is that they definitely they had... Suits, they wore trousers. suits, trousers. That's what you Which is groundbreaking, yeah. anyway. They might have had a waistcoat, tuxedo oh, aspect as well, I don't know. Okay. Um, so he called his suit for women, Le Smoking. That's what he called it. What does that stand for? Just that L-E, and then smoking, okay. the word. <laughs> and the word smoking. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and he, it was loved by individuals such as Bianca Jagger and Liza Minnelli. So it was... Bianca Jagger? Yeah. Mick Jagger's relation, relation. wife, <laughs> maybe. Daughter? Um, Don't know. No. Why? Okay. Is his daughter not Georgia Jagger? Georgia May Jagger. I'm not sure. That's that rings a bell. She's the one with the gap in her tooth, and everyone's oh, like, "Oh, she's a." She, she does get the London look, and everyone's she? like on Facebook and stuff taking the mick of her. Oh, that's not very her. nice, is it? No, and I think she's stunning. Okay, good. Well, Bianca Jagger and Liza Minnelli. This is why earlier when you were doing this, you went, oh, Liza Minnelli. And I was like, I wonder what she's writing about. Well, this. Oh, okay. Um, so everyone was a bit of a fan of his androgynous style and his left bank um, collection, chic. Liza Minnelli? Yeah. Is in Arrested Development? Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah. She's Lucille too? Yes, yeah, she is. All right, okay. <laughs> cool. Um, Yves Saint Laurent was also fond of art and created many outfits inspired by 20th century masterpieces like the Mondrian dress. 
Don't I didn't look actually this. look that up, so I don't know what but it is. But it is a masterpiece. Look it up. Yeah. The laundry and dress. <laughs> at the same time, he reinvigorated the French couture at a time when it seemed to be increasingly irrelevant. So he had his haute couture collection and his ready to wear. Ready to wear was Reeve Gouch. Haute couture, because he's so popular, people are interested in both. Right. He's appealing to both audiences. That's good. The rich and the not rich. <laughs> Although slightly rich, because you still have to have some money yeah. to afford you, so they're on. Yeah. So, as as well as Yves Saint Laurent being successful, the 1970s in Paris also witnessed the flourishing of Paris Vogue. Oh, Vogue. And they published controversial fashion photographs by Guy Bourdin and Helmut Newton. So, it seemed Paris were doing well. They've got Yves Saint Laurent and they've got other of his contemporaries and they've also got Paris Vogue. But at this time, both New York and Milan also became increasingly important centres of fashion during the 1970s. So now they're facing challenge from New York, Milan and London. French fashion was regarded as creative and prestigious, but many international consumers preferred the luxurious sportswear created by Italian designers such as Giorgio Armani and the minimalist styles associated with Americans such as Halston. Never heard of Halston. I don't know if I have. What a funny story about Giorgio Armani. Oh, yeah. I've seen him. Oh, on a boat or something? I did, yes. Where was that? Um, At the port in Ibiza. Right, okay. I think it was Ibiza town, actually. And we saw all his boat and we were like... I thought you saw, like, his son. No, no, it was him. Definitely okay. him. He was wandering around the boat in his box, in his, like, trunks. Armani trunks. Yeah, and he's right. so tanned and he had white hair. And then all the men were getting off the boat to go and collect stuff and they'd all take the shoes off when they got on. Right. You were, were like, all well organised in the uniform. There's Giorgio Armani. Yeah, we were like, we recognise that logo. Then we saw him and was like, oh, there he is. Giorgio. Gio. Did you go, Gio? <laughs> no. Gio. We just left him. He was on his holidays. Yeah, fair. I think they were just collecting supplies anyway to then go off again. Right, yeah. That's what they do, these people with belts. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, new subcultural styles, notably punk, developed in London. Johnny Rotten. Yeah, where Vivian Westwood dressed bands like the Sex Pistols yeah, in deliberately aggressive styles. Did I just say, Johnny? What's you did. Who, what's he called? What's that guy called who's in charge of uh, um, the Sex Pistols? Sort of. I don't know. Have you, have you got him? No. Malcolm McLaren. There we go. Thanks. I've just read your next line. He's Malcolm in charge McLaren. of the Sex Pistols. He was doing like all the design and stuff behind it all, wasn't he? Malcolm McLaren? Must have been Vivian then. Yeah. Vivian and her partner, Malcolm McLaren, yeah. I think they were married, Yeah. at the time ran a, famous, yes. a famously known store named SEX. No, that's from my... Uh, um, so they designed customised zips, studs, badges, rips and armbands, and they were being used on the street as a political statement. How do you know this from work? When I meant work, I meant from university. I did a bit in 1970s, didn't I? Right, okay. Britain. Um, so they also carried slogans that were sometimes controversial and had a message for the public. I didn't get it from Ikea. If that's no, what you were that's thinking. That's how I was like, what? <laughs> Vivian took her anarchist spirit to high fashion and mixed in traditional Scottish tartan and grunge-style dog chokers and humble classic clothing with pins and bondage. What do you think of Vivian Westwood's style? Because I always see it and I'm like, I'm not a big... Not a big fan. I don't always like it, but there are some aspects of her jewellery which I like. Jewellery, interesting. Yeah, so she's got necklaces and they're just like her logo, but sometimes I think they're quite cool. Right. But they're very expensive they're very for what expensive, they are. Very expensive, yeah. I don't know, it's not really for me. Yeah. So, compared with this, um, so Milan's sport style, America's minimalism, 
I London's, America was sport. Well, they used to be sport, and then they, they developed minimalist. more minimalist. But they are still sporty sport aspects. To minimalist, that's Think right. of Tommy. I know, I'm thinking of Tommy. And I think Milan's changed, because Milan's home of, like, Gucci, uh, Balmain, Versace. Balenciaga, Versace. I wouldn't say they're particularly sporty. I do Actually, not Actually, Balenciaga like trainers are quite sporty. Are they? Yeah. Like New Balance. You don't like Versace. I think I've seen Balenciaga trainers. Balenciaga. That's what I said. I think I've seen those trainers. You have. They're quite trendy at the minute. Yeah. Um, what was I saying? You don't like Versace. No, I'm just... not. A, I don't know him as a person. Um, but I well, saw the... Dead, so you won't well, know him. I, we watched American Crime Story, the assassination of Gianni Versace. We did. And um, his clothes just don't, don't do much for me. No offence, Gianni. Yeah, they're, they're not really for Donatello. me Donatello. Did you call Donatello? Donatello? Yeah, Donatello. But I think... I get confused. Donatello was a Ninja Turtle. No, no. Donatello. <laughs> and... And then Donatello started versus Versace, which is a separate brand. Right. And they're like, I don't mind some of them clothes because they're just pretty much black. Black, yeah. It's all black. But well, Versace, they're very colourful. <laughs> they're like gold and yeah. like patterned and stuff. Yeah. Usually black and Quite gold. Like inspired by like Roman art stuff, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, they are Italian. I'm good, Anna. Yeah. <laughs> so compared with Milan, New York, Sporty. and um, London. What's London? Like. Um, it was subcultural styles like punk, oh, right, grungy. Okay, yeah, with, yeah. Um, Paris is now a little old-fashioned. Yeah. yeah. Which they can't really help. Mm. Um, yeah, Paris came to the forefront again in the 1980s and 1990s, both because of the revival of famous fashion brands and because designers from around the world chose to show their collections in Paris. Right. So it's more 80s, of a designer 90s, decision. Okay. The House of Chanel, which had been in stagnation even before Chanel herself died in 1971. Oh. So it'd been on a bit of a decline. Okay. They became fashionable again in 1983 when the owners hired the German-born designer Karl Lagerfeld. Right. Is he still in charge? Yeah. Okay. Lagerfeld um, revised Chanel's iconic images. He exaggerated details and introduced new materials such as denim and chiffon um, to the house who, which had long been associated with proper tweed suits so yeah. now there's a bit more of a experimenting with a bit more materials and he's really successful and he's still there and he's he still got a hat loved. and a beard or is he no got he has a, hat a, and a white hair and a ponytail <laughs> okay yeah. and he always wears sunglasses right yeah i didn't know yes um and he always wears the same thing like he has like a jacket and a neck and like a, a scarf in his neck cravat a cravat yeah yeah um Coco Chanel. Yeah. Was, was she associated at all with Audrey Hepburn? We mentioned Audrey Hepburn earlier. I don't know. I didn't hmm. read anywhere else that anyone was associated oh, with right. Audrey okay. Hepburn. Who, who was associated? I forgot. Givenchy. Givenchy. Okay. Hubert. Hubert. Yeah. Sorry. So, Chanel's on the up, and yes. simultaneously, Paris witnessed the invasion of avant-garde Japanese designers. Oh. Um. So there was Yoji Yamamoto and Rei Kawakubo. So they were designers for Comms de Gasson. Comms de Gasson. Not heard of that. Don't know what that is. Um, is that a house? No, no. It's a it's a design. It's like a fashion design. It's quite cool actually. So they were they had a radically new style. So it was oversized, asymmetrical black garments. You'd like it. <laughs> which they were adopted by the uh, a minority of men and women who were usually involved in the arts. But oh. it's still around today. I still like that brand. Okay. 
Comes des garcons. When I said this at house, it's because you just said that one of the other ones was a fashion house. And yeah, I don't they know what are. The difference but is between a fashion well, house and a fashion brand. I think it's similar. Okay. It's just um, just calling them houses because okay. they're quite big brands. Yeah. Um, I thought you got confused, but the French word for house is maison. Oh, just why earlier you were going yeah. maison or something, <laughs> and I was like, she, what is she writing about Liza Minnelli and houses? Yeah. Did I say houses earlier? Yeah. Yeah. When you said maison, yeah. So, there's now also avant-garde Japanese designers right. in Paris. And Christian Lacroix, um, he's a different designer. He launched a new couture house in 1987. So, they had puff skirts inspired by Vivian Westwood's mini crinnies. So, mini crinnies are a skirt made of tulle crinoline. Don't know why I messed Don't that word know what up. That is. Um, and it's a bell-shaped skirt, so oh, right, he wasn't okay. the only de- designer to copy Westwood's lead of short skirts, supported by a form of crinoline. But he's one of the most significant for Paris. Never heard of Lacroix. Lacroix. I can't say it now. Christian Lacroix. Lacroix. I can't say it now. Lacroix. Yeah, Lacroix. Say Lacroix. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Um. So he's a big designer. So I wrote down how to describe this skirt to you. So. Tool is like ballerina skirt material. Think of yeah. that sort of material. So that is in a mini skirt draped over crinoline, which is in the form of like a skeleton. So what it would yeah, go under... It it's like a... Fundy pee, know what that is. What would go under ball gowns, but right. now it's under a, f- a shorter skirt. So that's quite good. Right. Um, also in the 1990s, houses such as Dior and Givenchy imported designers from London. John Galliano almost single-handedly transformed Dior with his wild yet commercially successful styles. He's a controversial figure. Does he have a little moustache? Yeah, he's got yeah. like long hair. Yeah, maybe that's straight what I hair. get mixed up. Yeah. And Alexander McQueen left Givenchy to establish his own company, which was backed by Gucci. But he did work in Givenchy for a couple yeah, of remember. years in the yeah. in the late nineteen nineties. I remember. Yeah. Um, oh, interesting. So they've brought in all these to make Paris more popular again. They've got Japanese people. They've got. I don't think the Japanese Galliano's came themselves, Italian. but that's the fashion house's decision. Yeah. So like McQueen's from London. Dior hired him to come in, so I don't Basically. think it was a. But they're bringing in all these outside influences. Yeah, which is interesting. Bringing it. Yeah. So McQueen was at Givenchy for a little while, yeah. and then he went to develop his own brand. So he had his own brand running at the same Yeah, he had his own brand running at the same time, but he found it quite difficult to keep up with all the shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, But what's significant is that McQueen always chose to show his collections in Paris because Paris fashion shows attracted more journalists than the shows in New York or London. Right. Which is interesting. After. It's a nice place, isn't it? (laughs) Paris, it is nice. And it's got that tradition as well, I think. Yeah. Which helps. It's got the history, Yeah. yeah. After Yves Saint Laurent retired, the American Tom Ford, you heard one. of him? Yeah, Tom he Ford. Briefi- briefly took artistic control at the famous French house and he also maintained control at the Italian fashion company Gucci. Right. Um, but he only did that briefly. All oh, right, okay. A host of Belgian designers also showed in Paris and even many Italian designers such as Versace and Valentino. Valentino, available. Mm hmm. Um, and they moved back and forth between Milan or Rome and Paris. But usually it's Milan. Um, but you can show wherever you want, really, if you've got a big name. It's just you have to guarantee that you get the Oldham. people there. Well, don't know if there's a venue that'd be In worth Oldham. it. Queen Elizabeth Hall, Oldham. Bucket, Valentino. <laughs> you um, tell him. <laughs> Tom Ford, filmmaker as well now. 
two films he's got under his belt. What are they? First one is um, a single man, I believe. I was getting confused. Single man, serious man. That's uh, with Colin Firth. And then he did, uh, what's that one called? With Jake Gyllenhaal in. I didn't really like it that much. I can't remember what it's called. Okay. But anyway, he's a bit of a Very stylized films, obviously, oh, yeah. you can imagine. Mm. As fashion becomes ever more international, the Paris shows now include an increasing number of designers from all over the world. So Nocturnal animals. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Brilliant. <laughs> so Paris fashion shows now include people from all over the world. So there's designers from Brazil and Korea, which are quite unusual, but they right. are shown at Paris. Um, the globalisation of textile and garment manufacturing is changing the economics of the entire fashion system. But couture, which really only exists in Paris retains its prestige and helps to drive an array of luxury goods from perfume to handbags and ready-to-wear lines. So recently I've been doing a course on sustainable fashion online. Um, So they talk a lot about how we need to look at every aspect of the supply chain while still delivering luxury, but figuring out what costs there are to like people, to the environment. You need to consider where you're willing to make your sacrifices, but it's, it, they're still conscious about delivering luxury. Yeah. And that's, that's where they suspect the fashion of the future will be, that there'll be luxury items. You, um, you'll buy secondhand because the items will last forever and things like that rather than just fashion, fast fashion, like I'll have it here, have it now. Like, get, rid of get it. it tomorrow, yeah, and then they'll wear it a few times. Primark. And then, yeah, but all of them are really bad. You just yeah. have to, it's quite difficult to buy like fashion for us because we can't afford no, big no. brands, we can't afford luxury. But it's just about knowing who, where you shop and where you don't shop. So, I try and shop at places where I know they're trying to do something to support the environment. Levi's do that, yeah. Levi's, so Matt's bought a pair of jeans today that are waterless. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I told you that. You yeah. didn't seem that impressed when I said it the first time. I was. Oh, were you? I okay. Said. I went, what was you at? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. Right. So I should be yeah. interested. So producing jeans is actually quite bad for the environment, but yeah. it's just about knowing where to shop. So yeah. do your research, people. And if there's there's like apps you can get, which are like called Good to Know, and then you just type in the brand and it tells you how good it is ethically oh, right. and environmentally, which is very good. Mm. So, um,. Many of the influential designers in Paris um, are not French and this continues a tradition established many years ago by um, the designer Worth. So he was English, he was the first designer in, in France and also other designers like um, Ella Schiaparelli. She was an Italian designer. Right. I mentioned her before. Set up a brand. Galliano, I said. No, no. What? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's now, in France now. now he's in France. Sorry, yeah, I thought you, meant, I thought you meant her. I no. Like, no, no. Um, so... No, no. These designers live and work in Paris and fashion journalists today have become accustomed to making an exhausting round of fashion shows um, in New York, Milan, Paris, London. They do them all in a row. Yeah, but, they're right after each other, aren't they? Yeah, Are they? but yeah. Paris remains like pretty much universally acknowledged as the most important fashion city. Mm. So that is my history of Paris fashion. That was good. I always think it's good choosing a topic that you're passionate about because then it comes i think it's more interesting to listen to for me it was anyway i hope you uh, agree people who've been listening to this for an hour um yeah but i think i always get a bit daunted when i'm looking into fashion though like i'm really interested in it but there's so much like there's so yeah. many designers the history's so long i can't i yeah, don't yeah. i never know where to start 
So this was, I was only Paris. just going to give you a brief bit about Paris and then go on to some designers, except Paris took too long, so, so I just Paris. intermingled some designers in there. Yeah, but it was good. Thank you for that. It's all right. I learnt a lot. Good. Um, I learnt lots of new names. Schiaparelli. Yeah. Um, and others. But I knew <laughs> yeah, most I of them. <laughs> I'd heard of quite a lot, actually, I think. Yeah, well, they are big names. So. Yeah. Even though I don't really know anything about Paris. I know a little bit about HC, obviously. Hog to uninitiated. Because you're just obsessed with that word for some reason. It's good. I can never remember how to say it. (laughs) I get worried every time. Um, It's a bit of a long one, though. Sorry. Yeah, a little bit. But we're coming to the end of our podcast as a whole. So it's good to have a little bit more listening in you. Just one more. One more report from Lorna. I hope it's a good one. I've got two. I've got one to write. (laughs) Three more. Three more. So, um, anyway, you can um, follow us on Twitter. You can give us a subscribe if you like. What am I doing here? You can follow us on Twitter. I'll start with that. Um, at Idiot History Pod on Twitter. Um, Gmail, idiothistorypod at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook or Instagram at Idiots Talk History. Uh, and you can. It's nice if you give us a subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast that you're listening to us on. Give us a like or a, a rating, sorry. And, and so, um, ask your friends to give us a listen as well. And most importantly, thanks for listening. Uh, and hopefully you'll come back and listen to our new podcast, On The Move, which begins soon, s- soon hopefully, as we um, travel around the world for, for the better part of a year. That's why um, this uh, podcast will be coming to a close, episode 80. So, yeah, with thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Yes. We'll speak to you next week, anyway. Bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.